Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. In this episode, I'm going to focus on the early history of an Algonquin Park institution, Canoe Lakes Portage Store. On a typical Saturday or Sunday during the heat of the summer, hundreds of visitors pass through and admire Canoe Lake from the vantage point of Portage Bay. For the really adventurous, it's to collect their rented canoes and equipment from the Portage Store outfitting shop and their permits from the park access point office in order to venture off north or south into Algonquin Park's interior. For local residents, the Portage Store is the place to get gas and oil for the motorboat, ice for the fridge or propane icebox, check in with the world by picking up a daily newspaper, or grab a well-deserved ice cream cone after a hard day of cottage chores. For tourists passing through the park on their way to Toronto or Ottawa along Highway 60, it's to stop for gas or a meal at the Portage Store restaurant with a quick visit to the second floor gift shop. For another type of adventurer, it's an opportunity in relative safety to indulge in one of Canada's most enduring pastimes, that of renting a canoe and going for a paddle. The Portage Store, known to locals as the P-Store, is a low-slung brown two-story building built into a gradually sloping hill. It has a wide expanse of windows on the second floor behind which is a restaurant and gift shop, as well as an open area that overlooks the bay and activities below. Down below is an outfitting shop that has available just about anything that one would want for a canoe trip into the Algonquin Park interior. Just past the trip shack is a wide, flat space filled with rack after rack of canoes. Eight different kinds of canoes are available to rent from kayaks and two-person 16-foot ultralights to three-person 18-foot monsters. On any given day, there can be dozens of canoes with novice canoeists zigzagging and sometimes going in circles all over the lake. On days when there's a great headwind, most rarely get out of Portage Bay. Some end up capsizing and are rescued by the Peace Store staff or local leaseholder residents. Just another regular summer day on Canoe Lake. My memory of the old store before 1960 is very faint. I was only seven years old when it was torn down. But once in a while, when standing on the end of the leaseholder's dock with a light breeze on my face and the sun going down, My vision will blur, and for a moment I can see the reflection of the old store in the water. The first proprietor, Molly Colson, is out on the veranda sweeping out the vestiges of the day's visitors, and her husband, Ed, is replacing the burlap over the cedar strip canoes that rest on a bay of straw down by the shore. But then all is cast in shadows. I blink and the images are gone. I remember once again how important it is that these voices and the voices of those who came after them not be lost and forgotten. So in this episode, I'm going to share all that I can remember about the origins of the Portage Store and my personal experiences with it as a social center of Canoe Lake. Some of it comes from a wonderful memoir that Isabel Cowie wrote and was found at her cabin back in the 80s, I think it was. The roots of the Portage Store began with the announcement in 1930 that the Ontario government was going to construct a road to be called Highway 60 that would run from Huntsville to Whitney and on to Renfrew, Ontario. It was designed as a depression make-work project. The immediate reaction from those who cared deeply about Algonquin Park at the time was, and I quote, 
An army of motorists will destroy the beauty and tranquility of the park and have a detrimental impact on fish and game stocks. This turned out to be a pretty accurate comment, although the magnitude of the resulting problems weren't really apparent until the late 1960s, as I shared in episode 13. Though it took a few years, Highway 60 was completed in 1935 and officially opened for business in 1936. According to park records and newspaper clippings during that first summer, 3,809 cars were checked in through the park west gate. Molly Colson with her husband Ed ran the Algonquin Hotel up on Joe Creek. They realized that the days of the railway as the main access point into the park were numbered and that there would likely be demand for services closer to this new highway. In 1936, Molly applied for a license of occupation to operate a canoe livery and store on a five-acre parcel of land at the south end of Canoe Lake in what was then called Portage Bay. Though business that first year was likely conducted from a tent, in late 1937 or early 1938, a small log cabin on stilts was built, and the Portage store came into being. Molly Cox Colson first came to Algonquin Park from Ottawa in 1900 to visit with her good friends, Dr. and Mrs. William Bell, who were staying on Cache Lake. She was a nurse by training and so fell in love with Algonquin that she never left. Molly was a wonderful healer and over the years became the go-to person for all manner of medical ailments from local midwife to prenatal counselor to setter of broken bones. She was even known to pull teeth upon occasion. Her first job was as the housekeeper for the park ranger boarding house at Cache Lake. She then went on with husband former park ranger Ed Colson, whom she married in 1907 to run the Highland Inn at Cache Lake from 1908 to 1917. In 1917, they decided to buy the Algonquin Hotel up on Joe Creek. They also established an outfitting store that was run by Ed's sister, Annie. According to longtime fishing guide Ralph Bice, in its heyday, the Colson store was the best outfitting store in the park. Annie could, he said, set up a list of supplies as well as most guides. People would call or write in their tripping orders before they came up. She would pack all their flour, rice, and whatever else they wanted in cotton bags. The eggs were packed into pails, and along with tents and blankets were then packed into big pack sacks. The Portage store in its original confirmation was really just a large cabin. It had a long set of stairs that ran up the front to a little veranda. There was a small addition at the back containing a meat locker with ice. In the center of the room was a pot-bellied stove to keep the place warm during storms or cold weather or in the early spring. In the beginning, it was operated more as a supply depot for smoke and cash lakes, as most of the fishing trip outfitting still took place at the Colson Outfitting Store. The walls were lined with shelves full of the basic supplies such as sugar, flour, and tea. Molly would take orders for fresh food, and the next week it would be delivered by Goldstein truckers. Later, the Colsons hired Joe Cousineau to manage the day-to-day -day operations with the daughters of various Canoe Lake residents helping out during the summer. But managing it plus the Algonquin Hotel must have become too much, as in the spring of 1939, the Portage store lease, which included the store, a sleeping cabin, and an ice house, was transferred to Basil Hughes and his brother, who were apparently quite the characters. The two of them used to go off for days and leave a sign, Gone Fishing, on the front door. In 1948, Highway 60 was paved, which greatly improved accessibility. 
There's a wonderful photograph on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, that shows what it was like when it was a mud-filled swamp after a rainstorm. Fewer and fewer people were taking the train, and more and more visitors were launching their canoes to the interior from Portage Bay. As a result, the Portage Star got more involved in outfitting and in catering to visiting day tourists. One old photograph shows the storefront covered with advertising logos, a trend that was soon disallowed, thank goodness. Another unsubstantiated story claimed that Hughes had a slot machine at the back of the store. One night a call came in via the local bush phone from the park gate that the Ontario Provincial Police were coming in to raid the store and confiscate the machine. All of the men who were there that night grabbed the machine and carried it out into the bush. When the OPP arrived, everyone pretended to have no idea what they were talking about. In 1941, Hughes went overseas to help with the war effort, so the Colsons once again took over management of the store. And Ed operated it until 1950 on a sublease. Unfortunately, in 1945, Molly took ill and died peacefully. As a tribute to her, a plaque was installed on Molly's Island on Smoke Lake, which was one of her most favorite picnicking places. It's still there today and reads, Her spirit was one with the lakes and forests she loved, her heart and hands ever at the service of those who called to her. Canoe Lake Resident, 1900 to 1945. In 1950, Basil Hughes sold the lease to Hilda Cap a music teacher and her accountant brother-in-law, Cardwell Walker. That fall, Cap requested permission from the department to enlarge the facility so that she could serve sandwiches and coffee, add a gift shop, and possibly erect cabins for overnight accommodation to serve the needs of a growing number of visitors. In late 1951, she asked for permission to install a gas pump and tanks in a payphone. Unfortunately, the department wasn't very supportive of any of her ideas. The payphone was eventually approved, but not the gas pumps or the gift shop or the accommodation cabins. By 1954, she gave up and sold the lease to the group of Janie Roberts, Isabel Cowie, Marg McCall, and Fran Smith. These four became known by the locals as the ladies who ran the Portage store. Marg McCall, along with her friend Isabel Cowie, had been introduced to Algonquin Park by a local Canoe Lake resident, Frank Brock, in the early 1940s. In 1953, they decided to get a lease for themselves and with friends and family built a small cabin on the south end of Canoe Lake. In the fall of 1954, Marg and Isabel heard that the Portage store was for sale. Both being teachers with the summers off, they, along with their friends, Fran Smith and Janie Roberts, convinced a bank manager to loan them the money to buy it with their houses in the city as collateral. For three summers from 1955 to 1957, they rented out canoes, sold groceries, and continued the tradition of selling ice and massive amounts of ice cream to local cottagers, canoe trippers, and visiting tourists. As Isabel Cowie wrote in a memoir, the groceries, though, were the lifeblood of the community. We sold bread and milk in high volume for only one cent over their cost, but doing so presented a number of challenges. The milk, which came from Huntsville, was particularly hard to deal with. It was often sour by the time it reached us, as there was no refrigerated trucks in those days. Bread, too, was difficult. Sometimes we didn't have enough, and at other times we were way overstocked. Once, when we had a surplus, we put the stale bread out behind the store for the deer. 
That night, those deer had a huge stag party that they never forgot. Twenty or more bucks gathered for dinner, the moonlight glistening on their antlers. Horace, a greengrocer from Toronto, would appear once a week with a truck loaded down with fresh fruits and vegetables. The wives of the leaseholders usually would corner him first and would leave little for the store. Fresh meat was also at a premium, but the ladies had an obliging butcher in Huntsville who would take their meat orders and bring them a truckload every once in a while. Packages of minute steak would be piled high in the fridge as steak orders were popular in summer. Borden's Dairy supplied them with their ice cream, with the Borden salesman showing them exactly how to dip a cone, one scoop, carefully rounded. Marg's nephew was the only one to perfect the technique. The others would make cones that were considered far too lavish. The Borden's freezer was supposed to be used only for ice cream, but the space was limited, so they were often forced to break those regulations. Whenever the Borden's truck appeared, the helpers would run to give warning. The meat would be quickly taken out of the ice cream freezer and passed from hand to hand and piled haphazardly in the nearby food freezer. Of course, the drivers likely knew what was happening, but they never let on. As the ladies learned how to manage a seasonal business through trial and error, their local leasehold customers were wonderful and helpful in many ways. One leaseholder from the north end of the lake would help frequently with the ice that was cut from the lake in the winter. It was packed in sawdust and stored in an ice house that existed down by the lake, about where the Tom Thompson plaque resides today. He would take on the difficult task of getting the ice blocks out and then sawing them into halves or quarters that the customers wanted. Elsie Ridpath, another local resident, helped diversify the Portage Store gift shop offerings by bringing some treasures from her Toronto furniture store for them to sell. The lamps and other antiques were real drawing cards and eagerly sought. Another woman made beautiful silver bracelets that flew off the shelves. That first summer, many of the local cottagers made large deposits on their accounts so that the ladies would have enough cash flow. A McCaskey system was set up with cards for each person's name. Normally, the system was used to keep track of how much credit was being provided to each customer, but they used it in reverse. They would deduct the sales from the total amount deposited by the customers. One item that they couldn't keep in adequate supply were mucklucks. These were oiled moccasins that were wonderful on the trails. Mark's nephew Paul and another summer helper Bill were the chief salesmen. They were too small a fit, Paul assured the customer they would stretch in the rain. If they were too big, Bill would say that they would shrink in the rain. Janie was responsible for looking after the canoes that were rented to canoe trippers going to the interior or visitors out for day paddles around the lake. It was quite a difficult job because many people booked them one or two weeks in advance. The boys would check the canoes as they came in and repaired any minor damage. Once a chap came in holding six paddles in a bunch in his hand. Something warned Janie, so she inspected them before putting them back on the racks. One paddle, it turned out, was taped together after having been broken in half, and another was badly split. She had to work hard to convince the renter that he should pay for the damage. But she had his car license plate number, so had the upper hand, and the matter was eventually resolved. The potbelly stove was a major draw, especially in inclement weather. When the store first opened in the chilly days of the early summer, cottagers would stand around and tell jokes, tall stories, and in general recount their adventures. 
Their laughter and jovial dispositions set a happy tone for the season and helped everyone over many a weary day. According to Isabel's memoir, one leaseholder claimed he was successfully hunting for precious gems in the park, but no one ever saw any of his prizes. He would boast that it was his daily ration of oatmeal that kept him fit and able to do his extensive prospecting. One morning, this same fellow followed Marg into their sleeping quarters at the back of the store and asked for a blanket. The eyebrows of everyone in the store went up, wondering what the old coot was up to. When questioned, he quickly explained that his wife had fallen into the water when they got into the boat to come down to the store and was now getting cold. Cold? That morning it was freezing. The wretch had left her shivering outside while he doddered about his business in the store. Perhaps it was revenge, for later he was always having to use the store payphone to call long distance to Toronto to get her to send him money whenever he left her in the city. Other frequent visitors were children from the nearby children's camps all around. They were always a happy lot, and so were the ladies when they counted their sales after they'd gone. The little campers would arrive in their large war canoes and quickly fill the store demanding their treats. Twizzlers were one of their favorites. One year, the camp doctor was worried and came down to inspect them. He had diagnosed them safe, concluding they were just licorice and glue. One day, one camper decided he wanted a hundred and was thoroughly frustrated when Carol, age seven, who was quote-unquote helping out, mounted on a stool behind the counter, took forever to count them out. Halfway through, the boy got antsy and in a huff told her to forget it. She bristled that if he did so, she'd wrap them around his neck. He waited patiently until she was finished. The ladies' living quarters left much to be desired. The boys slept in a huge tent behind the store and often retired there for short naps if the day was not too busy. The helpers and Annie the cook, Mark's sister, slept above the main store. And the four owners slept in a lean-to at the back of the store. One time one of the customers looked up one day as a shower of water fell on the counter in front of her. It turned out not to be a leak in the roof at all. It was just one of the helpers who'd flung her wet bathing suit on the floor above. The store had room to accommodate quite a few people, but the record was achieved in the summer of 1957, when 19 people, cut off from other places, had to stay the night. It was the Canada Day weekend, and Hurricane Audrey had hit Ontario. According to a history of the Taylorstatin camps called the Fires of Friendship, so much water fell that it overwhelmed many of the area beaver dams. The ones holding back March Hare Lake east of the Camp Amic waterfront at the north end of the lake broke. A huge wall of water went pouring down the rocky gorge, which led to Hickey Creek, now called Wigwam Bay. That flood of water plus overflow at Joe Creek Dam made the water level in Canoe Lake rise over three feet. At the south end of the lake, the storm brought down 17 trees at one cabin, and at another, the owner had to paddle out to erect a flag to mark the end of the dock. At another, the wife got up to feed her baby in the middle of the night and had to run out in the wind and rain to pull the canoe halfway up the hill so it would be above the high water mark. The flood swamped Potter Creek at the north end and put a foot of mud on many of the cabin floors. One resident, Pappy Stringer, refused to leave the house, so his son Wham paddled in the front door to rescue him out in the kitchen. On his way out of the door, the story told was that Wham decided to stop at the piano and played a few tunes from his canoe. 
At the Portage store, the flood nearly ruined the ladies. The store was creaking at its foundations, and they were terribly worried it would collapse. Everything in the cellar was afloat, including the worms, the cabbages, the lettuce, the carrots. Nevertheless, the ladies put on a brave front and rowed out to the end of the submerged dock to hoist the Canadian flag on July 1st. The American visitors cheered their patriotism. In 1956, the group requested permission to build an outhouse and install gas pumps. The outhouse was approved, but the gas pumps were not. In those days, the ladies would pump the gas by hand from 10 50-gallon drums into smaller containers, which were then poured into the customer's gas tanks. It was terribly hard and very time-consuming. In 1957, they asked to extend the kitchen to provide a screened-in porch to serve meals for the staff, and again asked to install gas pumps. This time, they emphasized that it would be a much safer way to dispense gas and would lessen their work considerably. Finally, the department agreed that it would be beneficial to the public during the summer season to be able to stop and get gas at one location along Highway 60. A contract was signed with Imperial Oil, who installed a gas pump in May of 1957. By 1958, after three summers of back-breaking work, the group of friends retired out. It was also becoming apparent that the new government policy put in place in 1954 of not renewing leases meant that the department would now be exerting more control over commercial activities in the park. Unbeknownst to them, the department had in fact decided that the Portage store property needed to be acquired and replaced with a more modern building. They also had decided that they wanted to manage it on a concession, not a lease, basis. The property was acquired by the department, the old store was torn down, and a new structure was built, ready for business in 1960. After their Portage store ownership experience, Marg and Isabel retired to their cabin on the lake. Fran returned to Guelph and took up a new career as a business professional. A couple of years later, Janie Roberts acquired a lease on the East Shore and also settled on Canoe Lake. Marg and Isabel remained on Canoe Lake until Marg's death. Soon after, Isabel sold the cabin and never returned. The new Portage store, complete with restaurant, gift shop, and canoe and outfitting rental shack, opened for business with Ken Simpson from Toronto, set up as the concessionaire. Ken Simpson was one of those men that you either loved or hated. For some, he was this amazing innovator who was knowledgeable of the tourist industry and interested in increasing the number of people who came to Algonquin Park. He wanted to enable experiences that were suited to individual needs and abilities. Not everyone, he voiced, was able or interested in going on wilderness canoe trips, car camping, or staying at one of the campgrounds, or paddling around Canoe Lake. So why was it not possible to make memorable Algonquin experiences for them as well? His first foray into attracting this new kind of visitor and creating unique Algonquin experiences was the Tom Thompson Memorial Boat Tour. This went on to become a major tourist attraction for quite a number of years. Originally a wooden cruiser, the boat would take a dozen or so tourists on an hour-long 16-mile trip tour. It would cruise north up the lake past the Tom Thompson Totem Pole and Cairn, down the west side of the lake and through the Bonita Narrows to South Tea Lake and back. This same route would take place five to six times a day at about a dollar a person. It became so successful that a few years later the Miss Algonquin Park, 
a glass-topped, 100-passenger, all-weather steel vessel was imported from service at the Toronto Islands and Lake Ontario. In 1969, it allegedly carried close to 24,000 people, which, from a 2021 perspective, is hard to believe. Though a great generator of tourist dollars, the Miss Algonquin had a significant environmental impact on Canoe Lake, as it ran on diesel fuel and generated a very large wake. Over the years, the wake did a fair bit of damage to leaseholder docks, retaining walls, and sections of shoreline all along its route. Eventually, as the water quality on Canoe Lake, and especially in Portage Bay, got poorer and poorer, complaints got louder and louder. New regulations intending to return the park to a more natural state contributed to its demise in 1973. Another proposal from Simpson that I stumbled upon accidentally in the archives of Ontario was to build a 200-foot panoramic tower a half a mile south of Highway 60, west of the Rock Lake Access Road. This site was one of the park's highest points, offering a view across much of Algonquin Park and hundreds of its lakes. Luckily, this idea never saw the light of day, but according to the 1963 proposal, and I quote, the tower would contain two high-speed elevators which would carry passengers to the lower of two observation decks. A curved stairway would allow visitors to the upper of the two levels. Visitors to the upper tower floors would hear a 10-minute automatic taped address describing the points of interest that can be seen from the tower. A history of the early days before the park, when some of our early explorers wintered in the park area, the fascinating story of early lumbering days in the park, and the beginning of the Algonquin Park story itself. Another suggestion was that a VHF receiver and transmitter be located in the upper panorama room, which could be used to report fires. Uniformed information officers could be on hand to answer questions, and with the aid of a large detailed relief map in the upper tower, would be able to describe the vectoring of smoke between tower locations. They could also describe the problem of getting firefighting personnel and material to the fire area, the enormous cost of these procedures, and a story about the extreme care with fire in forest areas. As the report went on to say, on both levels of the upper tower, telescopes on fixed bases would be available to the visitor without charge. This Algonquin panoramic tower would attract an enormous number of visitors from all over the United States and Canada. A film counter and a tea room at ground level would complete the facility. The ridge itself is well suited to the erection of the tower. To begin with, it is solid rock for excellent anchorage. The upper surface is almost completely level and would give excellent parking for about 100 cars. The short road in from Highway 60 could be built readily without blasting and has no more than a 7% grade. Luckily, the idea for an Algonquin panoramic tower never went anywhere. But I can't say for sure that a lot of those ideas didn't end up in today's visitor center displays. And it may be that the visitor center location is the same one that Simpson suggested. As Simpson's business grew, it became apparent that more land was needed in order to house the store support staff. Apparently, the Department of Health at the time had issued a request that living conditions for the Portage store staff be improved. The ministry decided to look no further than the lease directly to the north. It was owned at the time by Edith Webb. Since the late 1930s, Webb had maintained a little business renting out cabins and canoes to visitors. 
She would charge $1.50 a day per canoe to day trippers who used the south end of Canoe Lake as a launching pad for a day of paddling and picnicking. She had inherited the lease from a family friend, Robert Rimmer, who had taken out the lease in 1920 after he retired from the Department of Lands and Forests, where he had worked since 1909. Upon Webb's death in 1967, the Ontario Parks Integration Board expropriated her lease and turned the site into staff cabins. In the mid-1960s, Simpson decided that in addition to outfitting, there were enough full-time summer residents in the Tri-Lake area of Canoe, Smoke, and Tea Lakes, so he converted part of the lower floor into a grocery store. With this level of service, he reasoned, wives without cars wouldn't need to wait until husbands came up on the weekends, and those with cars wouldn't need to go into Huntsville to get their groceries. In 1960, there were two near-drowning incidents involving non-swimming day paddlers who were not wearing life jackets. Luckily for those involved, local leaseholders came to the rescue. To no avail, requests were made by the Canoe Lake and District Leaseholders Association to the ministry asking that non-swimmers be required to wear life jackets if venturing out in canoes. Unfortunately, in 1963, two non-swimming young boys without life jackets overturned their canoe just off the Portage store dock. A leaseholder jumped in the water and was able to rescue one. The other he found in only 10 feet of water, but it was too late. The doctor from Taylor Staten Camps was summoned and worked on the boy for nearly an hour to no avail. After reviewing the accident, the government decided to appoint a canoe safety officer, whose duty, according to lease records, was to check out each canoe going through the Canoe Lake Access Point for the various safety precautions good canoeists generally observe. However, as the official correspondence went on to explain, it's not possible for us under present legislation to enforce the wearing of life jackets and the observance of other safety measures so that our efforts for the time being will tend to be educational. In the final analysis, this approach will probably prove the most fruitful in any case. This is the first time we've hired a canoe safety officer, and we look on this as an experiment for the balance of the summer that remains. By the early 1970s, life on Canoe Lake was no longer as tranquil and serene as it had been previously. One constant for all lake residents were the large numbers of visitors who would rent canoes from the Portage store, not go on interior canoe trips, but spend their day on Canoe Lake and environments. These local visitors often had little or no skill in canoeing, with their ability to steer properly meaning that they had a tendency to zigzag across the lake as they tried to get from one spot to another. This was a challenge when the lake was rough. Some also were not as sensitive as they should have been to safety in a canoe and, and would either overload canoes with people or belongings or sit incorrectly. Few had paddling skills or other basic knowledge of canoemanship. Though in the early 1960s, the ministry offered via the Ontario Motor League canoe safety instruction as a service on the Portage Store Bay, Bay Beach, they had, by the 1970s, given up on trying to police canoeist activity in any major way. The ministry had decided that experience was the best of teachers. They didn't want to get into the position of being babysitters for the public, as one internal department memo of the time stated. Occasionally, there would be visits by the OPP to enforce the boating regulations, and the Portage store staff tried to provide some basic instruction in canoeing. But for the most part, it was an uphill battle. Every week, there would be a number of rescues of dumped canoes. It's amazing to think of the number of wallets, cameras, car and house keys, and even diving equipment that now rest at the bottom of Canoe Lake.
Once a fellow dumped just off the dock on the west shore with what looked like thousands of dollars of camera equipment that wasn't strapped into the canoe. Another time, a honeymooning couple deciding to change places in the canoe in the middle of the lake dumped and lost everything. At times, it seemed like common sense had been left behind in the cities or at the park gates. One funny story was the time a French couple stopped in at a leaseholder's dock to ask for directions. All they had with them for several days in the woods was a baguette, a round of salami, and a bottle of wine. They were expecting to find boulangeries and hostels along the route as was traditional on the rivers in the south of France. One of the most terrifying, though, was the year one resident found a couple paddling around the lake with their six-month-old baby with no life jacket on strapped into a car seat, which in turn had been tied to the center thwart of the canoe. Many naive visitors would head out of Portage Bay in a strong north headwind and not realize how tired they would get when not paddling properly and would end up blown onto Windy Isle or onto leaseholders' docks cold and exhausted. Others didn't buy a map and would end up spending hours paddling around Whiskey Jack Creek, Omic Bay, or Ghost Walk Creek, trying to find the entryway to Joe Lake. Still others would stay out on the lake during thunderstorms, not realizing the danger of being hit by lightning. Another big problem in the 1970s was visits from day visitors who thought that cottage docks were great picnicking spots built for their convenience and use. Often left behind would be a collection of empty beer and wine bottles. One year, a leaseholder arrived to find a group using a shower, and another time, two women decided to stop and go topless sunbathing on the beach at the Camp Omic baseball diamond. They didn't notice, somehow, that their prime sunning spot was in the middle of a boys' camp. Every year, there was at least one group that decided that Wabik Point was a perfect camping spot, or that outhouses at cabins near the Tom Thompson totem pole and cairn were public facilities. But not all interactions had unhappy endings. As I shared in my book, Treasuring Algonquin, which captured the history of Algonquin Park leaseholding, the Freemans on Smoke Lake reported that their father always befriended those confused-looking souls who turned up at the landing with the wrong or insufficient equipment. One of these was a family from Atlanta who appeared to have plenty of fishing gear but no blankets. Dad helped them to get packed in their boat and offered to provide the missing items. They indeed turned up later as the evening chill descended and, and a wonderful friendship started, which included trips to Atlanta for all of us, and some 20 years later for my parents a trip to East Berlin, where the rescued camper had become an international opera star. Such are the lasting effects of Algonquin Park, they went on to say. The Hutchins family rescues, at least two in a good year and in a bad year dozens, reported that one year there were so many that we would get the boat out whenever we saw a canoe on the lake. One Labor Day weekend in particular, we spent a whole day rescuing and transporting swamped canoeists until we ran out of gas. As mentioned in a previous episode, by 1974, all this became too much for everyone. After years of consultation, a new Algonquin Park master plan was introduced, which brought in a whole new approach to managing Algonquin Park. First up was the banning of all motorboats with engines more than 20 horsepowers and limits on the type of recreation allowed on interior lakes. Water skiing and jet skiing, for example, were banned. A total ban on the use of tins and bottles had a major impact, as did limits on the size of canoe tripping and camping parties. Later, a campsite reservation system helped reduce the congestion on many lakes, as did the later expanding of the number of access points. 
Campsites on Canoe, Tea, and Smoke Lakes were closed and trippers were forced to paddle to Joe Lake or to Ragged Lake before they could camp. Not long afterward, Simpson decided not to rebid his contract and a new Canoe Lake era began when Sven Biglin and his brother Eric took over the Portage Store concession in 1976. I hope you've enjoyed this walk through the stories and history of the early years of the Portage Store. In my next episode, I'm excited to share that Sven Miglin has graciously agreed to spend some time with me sharing his experiences running the store and how things have changed since those early years in the mid-1970s. My book on the topic of Algonquin Park's Portage Store, as well as my Paddler's Guide to the Lost History of Algonquin Park's Canoe Lake, a helpful companion to those day paddlers, can both be found on the Friends of Algonquin Park's online or in-person bookstores. Pictures of what the old store looked like can be found on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com.